Hello, everyone. This is um, Claudio Murgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire Show. And uh, my uh, guest uh, today is Dr. Connie Schweig. She's a retired therapist and writer known as the shadow expert. She's co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow and author of Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality. And also a novel, A Moth to the Flame, The Life of Sufi Poet Rumi. Her new best-selling book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends her work on the shadow into middle and beyond and explores aging and the spiritual practice. It won both the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for Best Inspirational Nonfiction. Dr. Connie has been doing contemplative practices for more than 50 years. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So uh, I um, browsed your uh, book, the, the latest one, uh, in fact, The Inner Work of Age. And uh, in the acknowledgement section, uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that uh, you mentioned um, several spiritual teachers. And uh, one of uh, them in particular uh, drew my attention, and that's uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, which is my guru. Um, why and how he inspired you? Wow, you're the first person to ask me that. Um, so when I was just 18 in college in Berkeley um, in the late 60s, um, there was a lot of political turmoil, um, Vietnam and the Black Power Movement. And um, I decided that I needed to do something about my anger. And so I began to read in the field of spirituality. I wanted to learn how to meditate. And Yogananda's autobiography was really the first book I found. And so it was the initial opening of a door to another world for me that really became um, my life's mission. And have you had the chance to read um, his others, uh, other um amazing books like The Second Coming of Christ and no. uh, Bhagavad Gita? No. no. I've read other translations <laughs> of the Bhagavad Gita. I didn't stay with Yogananda as a teacher. Um, I occasionally went to meditate at the Self-Realization Fellowship, but that wasn't my lineage. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I feel deep gratitude to him and to all of the teachers there, but it's not my lineage. Understood. Um, also in the, uh, the foreword of the book, um, Harry Moody mentions that the, the Western society doesn't you know, appreciate and doesn't tap into the experience and wisdom of the elders. Uh, and this attitude is a uh, abysmal contrast with the approach of the indigenous communities that cherish their leaders. Why do you think is that? Um, we live in a really ageist society in the post-industrial white mainstream culture and it really worships youth and demeans age and there are a lot of consequences for that many many but one of them is that we don't have elders we don't revere elders we don't even know what it means to be a wise elder and so we don't have models as we grow up i didn't have a single person in my family who I could look up to as an elder in my childhood. 
And what that means psychologically is that we don't have an internalized image of an elder that we carry with us as we move through the lifespan. So as a result, we develop a lot of unconscious fear and dread about aging. We internalize the ageism in the collective into what I call the inner ageist. It's an unconscious, what I call a shadow character that we carry with us. And as we age, we begin to feel shame, embarrassment, disempowerment, even self-hate and depression because we've bought into this notion that young is good and old is bad or strong is good and weak is bad or quick is good and slow is bad. And so the whole, all of the changes that naturally occur with aging end up bringing us um, grief and resistance and self-hate. It's really, really tragic. Yes, and that is, it's sad because uh, it was um, research that in fact the elder people uh, find new life when they are being asked for their wisdom, when they are being asked to share from their experience. Uh, and even the simple fact of uh, someone in their 60, late 60s, 70s, taking care of the, the family by preparing the meal, it's something which will empower them, give them the energy to, to move forward in, in uh, later years of, of life. And we, the younger generations, really don't understand that. And we think that we protect them somehow if we don't go and ask for advice. And at Well, the si- yeah, I mean, we live now with age segregation. You know, there are fewer multi-generational families living together who can do that, who can share babysitting and meal preparation and also this deeper issue of transmitting life lessons um, to the next generations. And so there is no eldering going on. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I felt just what you're describing in my late 60s, I began to feel disoriented and wasn't sure when I retired from my clinical practice as a therapist, what my life would be about. And I started to feel all these fears of becoming invisible and irrelevant and useless. And I realized that millions of other baby boomers must be feeling that. But most of the books about aging are about aging from the outside in. They're about finances and healthcare and demographic issues. They're not about aging from the inside out. What is the lived experience, the inner world like? And definitely not about the spiritual purpose of this stage of life. I mean, I couldn't find material on these things. And that's why I realized I needed to write another book. Yes. And another aspect of um, uh, aging is we are losing this uh, wisdom along with the person when uh, that person transitions. Yes, the, the wisdom somehow goes into the collective consciousness, but then we'll need someone else to retrieve it from there and be applied in, in the physical world. 
And at one point, like maybe five, six years ago, I had the idea of creating a website where people, retired people can record their experiences in whatever field they, they were specialized into. Um, even a cancer survivor or survival of a special disease will empower others and give them hints on how to cope with their own situation. But of Did course, you do that? I, I, I think I was a way, uh, way ahead of my time. I, I couldn't ah. find the, the resources and the right tools to do it. But I thought it's a very good idea for others to, to tap into that knowledge. For those which you just said don't have the elders to look uh, up to. You know, um, that's a profound idea. I really hope that you'll be able to do that. Are you connected to any positive aging organizations where you could propose that idea? No, not at this point. I no. have too many things on my plate. Too many other things. To focus things. back on that uh, okay. project, yes. Okay. Well, you know, there's an old saying that every time an elder dies, it's like a library is lost. And so it's, it's a really profound thing to think about. And what people can do in their own lives is go to family members and ask them to do a life review on video or write it down if they like to write, write a memoir. Because now there's so many technologies to be able to capture some of this, at least in the family, if not more widespread. Yes, indeed. I'll think about it. Maybe I'll, I'll revisit the, the project. Um, staying on this subject of, uh, you know, what we want and uh, what our soul wants, do you think people can make this difference? Are they aware that what the soul wants is much more important than our physical needs? You know, this is a very individual issue. So for people who don't have their survival needs met, it's a luxury to think about the shift from role to soul, right? For people who have a good foundation in the physical world, um, either financially, emotionally, psychologically, um, there's an opportunity in this stage of life to turn within and begin to attune to the deeper voice of the soul. I think that um, every spiritual tradition in every culture teaches that the whole point of this stage of life is spiritual practice. It's transitioning out of the household and out of the career roles into cont contemplation and maybe awakening, spiritual awakening. And there, and so this is a universal teaching. Um, and there's no guidance for this in our culture. Again, there's no guidance to become a spiritual elder. And so what happens is, you know, people continue going to church. They think it's about their beliefs. It's not about beliefs. It's about experience. Spiritual, direct, internal spiritual experience. Um, and they typically don't find that in organized religion. And so what I did with the book is I, I set up really a rite of passage. If you go through the book from chapter one, each chapter is full of practices. 
And as you move through, you, you get to spiritual practices, and there are many of them in the book. And you begin to attune to yourself and find, what do I resonate with? What is calling to me? And that's attuning to your soul. That's listening to your deeper, like when I said to you earlier, that wasn't my lineage. I had to wait until I recognized my own lineage. It wasn't Judaism in which I grew up. And so for me, that's an important um, guidance to give to people, that they can find a contemplative practice, even in a late stage of life, that really deeply resonates with who they are now, not with who they were as a teenager or in midlife, but with who they've become now. And so they walk through the practices in the book to become an elder. And then it opens out into becoming a spiritual elder. And there are so many possibilities now because all the spiritual traditions have become democratized, right? All the mystical teachings are available. All of the teachers are here for us. And so you can kind of tune in and then explore and see what resonates and what doesn't resonate until you find a practice or a teacher or a community that really fits who you are now. Yes, you also mentioned that this process um, to achieve the, the spiritual elder status, if I can say so, also uh, involves certain um, passages, rite of passage, pretty much. Do you think that this rites of passage have changed in the last 40 to 50 years? Well, we don't have any. That's what we were saying at first. Indigenous people had them, and it was a lot about going into the wilderness alone and learning how to survive and how to self-reflect. We don't have these practices. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. So for me, as I went through my own rite of passage, and which really deeply changed me. Um, one practice that was really important was doing a life review. And I expanded the traditional life review, which is the ego story of how we lived our lives, to include the unlived life in the unconscious, in the shadow, which is my expertise, my training in depth psychology. So then we can connect what we lived with what was unlived. And we go through our whole life and all the key events and key people, and we look at the patterns and the synchronicities and what failure actually became a victory and what loss opened another door and became a gain. And from this long view of our lives, we can see how things unfolded at a deeper level than we realized. And if we're spiritually oriented, we can see that something larger was carrying us. You know, we could call it the Tao or the Dharma, whatever we call it, you could call it God. Um, something was carrying us. It wasn't that our ego was in control, which is what we thought, you know, we're making decisions and we're rational. We can see this larger story that was holding us. And so for me, that's one step in becoming an elder. 
Another important one is emotional repair. Because if we don't reconcile our relationships and really work on healing our wounds, um, when people age, they can become bitter and rigid and regretful. And that's not becoming an elder. That's growing old, but it's not growing wise. And so that inner work is necessary. And spiritual repair is necessary. You know, many of us who've been on the path for a long time have experienced a lot of disillusionment, even spiritual or religious abuse. And so how do we repair that? so that we can reconnect now with spirit or with the divine um, in the face of death, you know, with mortality awareness, because that changes our spirituality when we recognize that we're mortal and our time horizon is short, shorter now. So for me, that's part of the rite of passage. And mentioning mortality, I think, there's so much denial of mortality in our culture until COVID, you know, that's one of the, I think one of the positive shifts from COVID is that people really became aware of mortality and of the value of the time that we have left and of the vulnerability of all of us, regardless of beliefs, you know, whether we believe that we never die and we're going to be reborn, whether we believe that we'll just return to dust, I'm not interested in our beliefs. I'm interested in experience, direct spiritual experience. So whatever you believe, the body will die. And facing that mortality, I think, is a part of becoming an elder. If we're in denial of death, we're not becoming an elder. So there are many kind of steps like that through the rite of passage that I think we need to um, we need to create in our culture. And I'm actually meeting now with several dozen elders to create rites of passage for people. So we recognize the need for that. Very interesting, and I think you know, another level of um, insatisfaction of how we live our life is because we are tied to doing and to age and, and labels more yes. than what we really, really are, as you said, at the soul level and spiritual level. And that causes another uh, layer of, of depression and insatisfaction. Yes. So I call this shadow character the doer. We're identified with our doing, our success, our accomplishments, our productivity. And what does that mean when we retire from work and lose that role? Who am I now? What does that mean when we um, become ill and can't engage our doing in the same way? Or what does that mean when we physically slow down in some way and can't be as active as we used to be. And so again, I come back to this teaching that it's not about what we do or don't do 
in late life. It's not how much we volunteer or don't volunteer. That's all fine. We can do creativity, service. We can find another career. That's all fine. What I'm talking about is an internal state of mind or level of awareness or level of consciousness, if I can use that language. I'm talking about a level of consciousness in which we shift our identity from the doer, the role, to soul, or whatever we call our spiritual nature, whatever name we have for that. How do we shift our deep identification from what we do to who we really are? And the phrase role to soul came from Ramdas. I borrowed that term from Ramdas who came up with it many decades ago, and I remembered it all this time. And it just fits so perfectly what I was trying to write about. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, And so this shift from role to soul is a way of saying that this stage of life calls to us. It's not over when we stop working. It's not over when we stop doing, when we experience an emotional loss or lose a job or even become ill. But the soul's development continues. And whatever we call that, we can, Jungians call it individuation. You know, psychology calls it emotional, spiritual development, right? Whatever we call that, it continues. The arc of the soul in time continues to move. And the teaching here is that we can attune to that and we can support that movement, that evolution of the soul. We can support it by the inner work of age. Yes, you're quite right. And um, no matter how many hours we volunteer for a good cause, no no matter how many people we, we help, um, we still have to go back to that inner peace, that awareness you just mentioned and consciousness, uh, because that will, will help our soul develop, not just um, action, action, action every single day without the pause to reflect on what's important for us and how we can uh, move forward spiritually. That's, I think, it's, it's a big misunderstanding in, in today's society. It's a big misunderstanding. In psychology, we would call it a split. You know, there's a split between being and doing. So people listen to me and they think, oh, I've got to stop doing everything and just sit around. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a quality of awareness that we can cultivate and bring into anything we do. And you might start, to our listeners, you might start attuning to other people and checking in and seeing, do they have that elder quality of awareness? Are they connected to something larger than their egos? Are they speaking from the wisdom of their whole lives? Are they aware of their shadow issues? Are they aware of their mortality? And you begin to get a sense of who's an elder. 
And they could be working, you know, with my new book, I'm working a lot, right? Um, I didn't anticipate it. I didn't plan it, but that's what unfolded. And yet with my meditation practice and my self-care and my rhythm, you know, as an elder, I'm doing this differently than I've ever done it before. I mean, I was really, when the last book came out, I was pushed from within to be the doer. And I was attached to the outcomes of all my efforts. I'm not feeling either of those things now. There's a freedom inside as this is moving through me. Yes. And so it's a very different experience as an elder. Interesting. And to, to add to my previous point, I think the the society is moving us into that direction. It's trying to keep us busy mentally um, so we don't have time to, to go within because an uh, enlightened person or a person which is um, conscious um, is less, uh, less um, um, yeah. compliant, exactly, and less manipulated. So yes. that is not something... Um, those in, in power want us to, to become because then we will ask questions. We will inquire more. And that's not what they, they desire from us. Yeah, I don't mm. think it's as, I don't see it quite as paranoid as that, but I think it's more about capitalism. I think it's more about the workaholic culture wants to keep us productive in order to keep the economy moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's that people really don't want us to stop and reflect because there's an awful lot of political activism and polarization now. But I think the workaholic culture has trained us from an early age to be busy and to be making money and to care about money and to care about productivity. And... You know, there are a lot of shadow sides to that. A lot of shadow sides to that. And I think now in our 60s, 70s, 80s, that the ages that I'm really dealing with, some people in their 50s, there are people in my 40s coming to, in their 40s coming to my workshops. There was one guy, 30s, that he read my book and it changed him forever because he's going to age differently. But mostly I'm talking about people after midlife. And, you know, for, for those of us in that stage of life, um, we're not so driven anymore. And if we are, if we continue to be driven like our midlife heroic selves, we really miss out. We miss out on this larger, deeper spiritual reality that's just waiting for us. You know, it's just waiting there for us to tune in and expand our consciousness and open up to something larger than ourselves and then see what arises. For some people, service will arise, you know. For other people, you know, and especially extroverted people who want to be in community, who want to be with other folks, um, and more introverted people, that may not arise. 
They may want to learn more meditation or focus on their creativity, yes. you know, or their families. Yeah. How is your uh, book received by, uh, you know, religious and, and spiritual um, communities? Um, well, I'm talking to the Unitarians next month, and I'm talking to the Theosophical Society. Um, um, there are a couple synagogues. Um, there are some alternative spiritual groups who've invited me. Um, no mainstream Christian churches, although I'd be happy to do that. You know, in the book, there are interviews with teachers from every tradition. So Father Thomas Keating, um, you know, who was a Trappist monk um, and the founder of Center in Prayer, gave a beautiful interview. And it turned out that it was right before he died. So it's really precious to me. But I also interviewed Krishna Das. Mm. and Ken Wilbur and a couple of rabbis, Rabbi Rami Shapiro and, um, and several Buddhist teachers, Roshi Wendy Nakao and Anna Douglas who founded Spirit Rock. So the book is very ecumenical. And the reason is that I'm not hung up on beliefs. For me, it's not about what we believe, as I said, It's about what we experience. And that means we can be all inclusive with the teachings and not get hung up on the language differences and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, I think we need more uh, books like, like yours to make no difference between uh, beliefs and uh, point fingers saying, oh, my beliefs are better than yours and you have to follow my path. And I'm also a strong believer that uh, each one of us has his own path. And uh, if the end goal is the same, enlightenment, <clears throat> getting better as a human being, that's the, that's the most important goal of, of our life. So, yeah. And Yogananda you. was a beautiful model of that, you know, the way that he included both Hinduism and Christianity in a mystical, in a mystical context. It's not that there's no difference in beliefs. There are. But at the mystical level, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes. I mean, his um, second coming of Christ uh, book explains the New Testament in a very different way. And it's sad that uh, there are not too many um, Christian priests uh, interested in this type of uh, teachings and uh, understanding um, this from a different perspective. Yeah, it's tragic. I know. Um, there is a lot of uh, talk these days about, you know, society moving into smaller communities in order to survive the potential failing of social structures. Um, do you see these communities evolving beyond the way of practicality and surviving into a more spiritual um, way and community moving together towards God and enlightenment? I don't really know what you mean by survivalist communities. I'm not really tuned into that. It feels paranoid to me. But I do feel there are about 30 groups now reading my book in community. And their intention is to age together. And they're going through the practices together. There are lots of spiritual communities that are... Um, 
you know, doing practices together. Um, I don't, you probably know Buddha at the gas pump. Yes. Rick Archer's <clears throat> podcast. I mean, I did that interview and in a minute there were 20,000 views. So there's so much interest in awakening and higher levels of development. Ken Wilber's whole integral life thing is so huge. It's international and everything. So there's a huge amount of interest in this. And um, there are genuine breakthroughs. I know, I would say a dozen people now who are in very high stages of awareness or levels of consciousness, very, very advanced. So this is happening. It, from my point of view, it's happening on a small scale relative to the crises that we're in, um, the, the social cultural crises and also the climate crisis. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yes, and you just mentioned um, the climate crisis and that ties into my, my next questions because I heard you mentioning that uh, you train with um, Al Gore um on environmental um, issues so do you think that after so many years his stories has uh, shifted in any way is less uh, less trusted um or is at the same level of um you know actuality oh it's much worse now I mean, when Gore started talking about it, he's like Cassandra, the mythic Cassandra. Nobody, he was a prophet and nobody listened. Um, and, you know, I don't know why, when he was in the White House, why he wasn't able to do anything with Clinton, but it's much, much worse now. So um, I trained with him several decades ago. And then I trained with Citizens Climate Lobby and went and lobbied Congress. Um, I have a friend who's writing about climate crisis in an aging society because there are, you know, there are 10,000 boomers turning 65 every day. So the aging crisis is happening in the context of the climate crisis. And there's a lot of um, interaction there between those two themes. Um, yeah, you know, Biden's Build Back Better could have had some impact. Who knows what will happen now? Um, I don't know. I, so you don't see asking, a solution to this um, Oh, crisis. there are many, many solutions. <clears throat> I mean, there are many, many solutions, but they're not being applied on any scale that ma makes a difference. Because, so what do you think it holds them back? Well, the fossil fuel companies have politicians and governments deadlocked. I mean, it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at who funds Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, it's fossil fuel companies. Okay. So it's money in politics in the U.S. and other countries. It's other issues, you know. But I mean... It's very gridlocked and it's very scary. And, and do you see the implementation of um, free energy technologies in our lifetime? What does that mean? I mean, there are technologies which have been developed for the last hundred I mean, years. Fusion or what do you uh, mean? I mean, even Tesla has developed uh, one type of technology a hundred years ago and then it was dismantled. 
there are um i know oh, the early tesla early tesla but even in uh -huh. our days um the um freedom portal uh, run by um um forgot his name but uh, there are technologies and entrepreneurs all over the world uh, africa us europe who developed this uh, free energy technologies which uh, just require uh, you know the government approval and acceptance there are prototypes out there um, ready to um, to go uh, but as usual these technologies are being suppressed by different interests so I I wasn't sure if you know more about uh, the the subject more than me. I don't. All I know is that as long as the fossil fuel companies remain hold, hold have their chokehold on politicians, things can happen in small scale, but they're not going to scale up to where they really matter, because you know that's the reality right now. Yes. I think the divestment movement has been really helpful. Many billions of dollars have been pulled out of supporting fossil fuels. Um, but there are many technological solutions. I think it was, was it Paul Hawken who wrote Drawdown? Yes. Yeah, yeah. there are many solutions that, in that book. But, you know, we're stuck. And we're watching the destruction of our own habitat. And so what you and I are talking about, let's relate it to our topic. Um, I'm worried about my grandkids and the world they're gonna grow up in. I'm worried about all of the um, people now who don't wanna have children because of climate, the climate crisis. I know I wouldn't at this point, yeah. but all the younger people who feel you know, so um, impotent and despairing about it, climate grief. Um, and so what does this mean for future generations? And what are elders responsible for? My generation is responsible in some ways because we're the first generation that knew that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was the problem. We're the first generation that knew, and yet we did nothing about it. And so, I think there's a lot of guilt among my peers. Um, there's a new organization that's forming now, you know, Bill McKibben of 350.org. Yes. He just launched a new organization called Third Act, which is elders fighting climate change. So he's trying to engage my generation in this purpose. Um, so, you know, there are people who are really spending their lives on this in all from all different directions and maybe something will happen maybe something good will come of it i don't know you know i my husband and i just moved because we were in a fire we were in the santa monica mountains and always having to evacuate for fires we just got sick of it yeah. so it's it's a scary time in that way and Let's also remember, we're talking about spiritual practice. So for me, when I sit in meditation every day, I have a refuge from all this craziness. I can close my eyes and go into vast silence. 
and sit as long as I want and come out renewed, reinvigorated. People who don't have that and who are basically exposed to all the noise all day long and never really tune into the signal in the noise. Wow, I don't know how they do it. I think it must be totally exhausting. Yes, so, so there's a connection between our spiritual practice and the amount of stress that we're internalizing from all these larger social issues. And whatever social issues you're concerned about, you know, gun violence, racism, hunger, you still need that refuge inside yourself. That for me is the most important thing. And I really think if I hadn't started meditating when I was 19 years old, I'd be a very different person. I mean, I don't know who I would be. I don't know if I would have survived. But I'm so grateful for practice. Yes, and I, I mentioned so many times that um, our schools miss this, or educational system miss this component. Yes, they do learn religion in, in schools. But what if they will take 15 minutes out of that hour to learn about meditation and how they can still their minds? That will uh, bring up a new generation of much more wise individuals yes. and much more calm individuals. But again, the, the, the system is not there for them from that perspective. At that yes. set, because at, at home, uh, no matter how much we, we try to induce this type of um, behavior into our kids, it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, well, that would create a whole new run on homeschooling because Christian parents would be so freaked out. So it's very difficult. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, your uh, programs, your workshops. Okay. So um, I'm teaching several different kinds of workshops. One of them is on life review and it's an animated PowerPoint. So it actually demonstrates how to do it. And I give time for self-reflection so that you're really doing it during the workshop. And you're learning um, how to review your life and then how to review your unlived life in the shadow. And once you see that, you can decide if you want to reclaim something from your unlived life to live now. So um, I teach that quite regularly. I also teach inner work for retirement. I just taught that Friday night, about 100 people. It was really fun. And that's focused on identifying the doer. And people have different names for that shadow character, you know, um, provider, um, driver, um, and and then they identify that part of themselves and they learn how to make the shift from role to soul using shadow work and meditation. So shadow work and then a centering practice and then they practice making that shift. Um, I also teach Becoming an Elder, which is kind of an overview of the book and what we were talking about, the rites of passage in the book. Um, and I also teach creativity and shadow work. So for people who struggle with creative blocks, um, 
I'm, I'm offering a way to identify the shadow characters that are blocking you when you begin a project or maintain a project or complete a project. There are these um, impulses that come up from the unconscious and stop us. And if we can learn to actually identify them and do our meditation practice and observe them and not follow them, which is what shadow work is about, then we can have a much more creative flow in our lives. So those are the main workshops that I've been teaching. Yeah, it's very interesting because we all uh, need um, to unblock our creativity in our daily life and even in our working life sometimes. So that's that's very important. Are you working on any new book? Well, and I just would say that those are always listed on my website on connieswag.com if anybody's interested in checking it out. Um, I'll have a book coming out in 2023. Um, it's a previously published book that went out of print called Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality. And um, this publisher that I'm with now wants to me to update it, revise it, and reissue it. And, you know, it's about the shadow side of all the gurus and all the priests and all the communities and how to make sense of spirituality in, in light of the ever-present human shadow. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Coney, we are approaching the end of the interview. Any final thoughts, please? Um. You can email me at conniezweig at gmail.com if you are reading the book and you're interested in reading it along with other people and aging in community, doing the practices together, you can join a wisdom circle or a book club and I will put you together with other people. So you can reach out to me if you're interested in that. Just put wisdom circle in the subject line of the email. And thank you, Claudio. This was really lovely. So glad we had this time together. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Uh, and uh, to my viewers, thank you for uh, watching. Share it, like it. Um, uh, support me on uh, patreon.com slash Murgan. Get a free copy of my book when you visit my website. And until next time, love and gratitude. <laughs>